Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we will focus on Social Security. Our first guest, Andrew Biggs of the American Enterprise Institute, co-authored an, an op-ed in The Washington Post last week explaining, quote, how Biden helped Congress cut Social Security 40 years ago. We'll talk with Andrew about the current status of Social Security and what reform options exist to improve its long-term financial status. And then in our third segment, Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson will discuss his new issue brief titled Social Security's Debt Limit Escape Clause. Well, first up is Andrew Biggs. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies Social Security reform, uh, state and local government pensions, and public sector pay and pensions and benefits. And before joining AEI, Biggs was the principal deputy commissioner of the Social Security Administration. And there he oversaw SSA's policy research efforts. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson joined the conversation. Andrew, I wanted to get you on the show this week to discuss, among other things, your Washington Post op-ed that you wrote with your colleague uh, Jim Capretta at AEI called How Biden Helped Congress Cut Social Security 40 Years Ago. Uh, that sounds like an intriguing premise. And uh, I think it all goes back to the 1983 package of reforms that uh, Congress with uh, then-Senator Biden's vote um, passed and President Reagan signed that's uh, kept Social Security solvent since then. I wonder if you could review what did that package consist of and generally did it receive bipartisan support? Well, thanks, Bob. It's worth looking back at the reforms of 1983 because it's a situation similar to what we may be facing with Social Security. You know, each year we get closer to the exhaustion of the Social Security trust funds. The CBO says it'll be 2032. Social Security thinks it might be 2035. When that happens, you're looking at a 20% or greater cut to benefits across the board. And so that becomes kind of a crisis situation where Congress is forced to do something. 1983 was a very, very similar situation. They were about three months away from the trust funds being exhausted, you know, after which they would have had to cut benefits pretty significantly. And so Congress and then the Reagan administration were forced to come together to finally come to a deal on Social Security. And I think it's useful looking at that kind of deal, how it came about, you know, who was involved with it. Because what we have today with Social Security aren't plans for fixing Social Security. They're really promises or pledges. Um, President Biden has said he will not cut any Social Security benefits. He said he won't raise taxes on anyone earning under $400,000. That makes it almost mathematically impossible to fix Social Security. 
Now, former President Trump is kind of playing the same card. He's beating up Ron DeSantis, claiming he wants to cut Social Security. President Trump doesn't have any uh, plan for actually fixing the system. So we have to go back to 1983, almost 40 years ago, to find how Congress actually came together on a bipartisan basis to make the program solvent for the future. And they really did accomplish a lot. It's, you know, if we're looking at Social Security being solvent until the mid-2030s, that's an extra 40 years of solvency that the Congress and the Reagan administration added in 1983. So they really did accomplish a lot. Broadly speaking, you can categorize the, the changes they made into either tax increases, uh, benefit reductions, or what I call base broadening. The base broadening is they required, say, newly hired federal workers, employees of nonprofit organizations, they required them to participate into Social Security. Now, that in itself, what it does is it adds some money in the short term because they have to pay taxes first, and then they get paid benefits later. So that, that was part of the package. The more fundamental things were either raising taxes. The, the main part of that was a scheduled increase in the payroll tax. It was scheduled to take place in later years. That was moved forward. So effectively, you raise taxes faster than you plan to do it. There was an increase in the tax rate for self-employed workers. So together, those tax increases, when I look at the total improvement to the solvency of Social Security, they accounted for a little over 20% of it. Tax increases are not the main component of, of the plan. What I think the main component of the plan came together was, in fact, reducing benefits. And this is you know, where the title of the Washington Post piece ultimately came from. There are two big things done. First, the retirement age was gradually increased from 65 to 67. That was legislated in 1983, but actually didn't become fully implemented until, I believe, last year. So there was 40 years of warning on a two-year increase in the retirement age. You could still claim benefits as early as 62, but it meant you took a bigger reduction. So to get the full benefit, you had to work an extra two years. The second big thing they did was they imposed income taxes on retirement benefits, and they redirected those revenues, not just to the treasury where other income taxes go, but back to Social Security. This was a de facto means test on Social Security benefits. If you had over $25,000 of income outside of Social Security, half of your benefits would be subject to income taxes. This is effectively just a means test. And you know, they didn't want to call it a means test. But it was just another way of reducing benefits. The retirement age reduced benefits across the board for everyone. The taxation of benefits, that means test, that reduced benefits selectively for people who are greater income outside of Social Security. If you look at the total solvency of the, the deal, uh, the, the improvement to Social Security's finances, almost 60% came from those two things. There were also some selected um, benefit increases, you know, very targeted things, uh, helping um, you know, widows and, and so forth. Uh, but, the, but the real action was speeding up a, a tax increase was already on the books and raising retirement age and imposing a means test on, on retirement benefits. So it was, it was a more of a benefit cut heavy plan than a, than a tax increase heavy plan. 
And it's, you know, what we point out in the Washington Post op-ed was that, you know, you had all these sort of luminaries of 1980s politics, but one of the people who voted for that was, you know, then Senator Joe Biden. And, you know, unfortunately, he is he's put himself in a bit of a corner today, I think, by ruling out almost everything that was included in which he supported in that 1983 fix. You also mentioned that in 2012, he as vice president, he was um, the point man for the Obama administration's offer to Republicans to change the cost of living adjustment formula. Uh, to a, a, a different uh, formula that economists prefer uh, that would have had some savings. Uh, that didn't work out, but it was something that he was involved in. And, you know, since then, nobody seemed to want to touch it um, as we've slid closer to insolvency. And before passing off to Tori and Steve, how much harder has the problem become to solve since, say, things left off in 2012? Well, uh, thanks for uh, raising the issue of, of uh, cost of living adjustments. I forgot to mention when I described the 83 reforms that another part of that was delaying uh, cost of living adjustments. That actually was a pretty significant component of the package deal, and that, that was another uh, benefit reduction. In 2012, the, the Obama administration was trying to cut a, a grand bargain on the federal budget with congressional Republicans who you know control the House and Senate at that point. And one of the components they agreed to was changing the way cost of living adjustments, COLAs, are calculated to, to using a measure of inflation called the chained CPI. Now, most economists, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, think this chain weighted CPI is a better measure of inflation than the one that is currently used, but it also would tend to pay lower COLAs for, for Social Security retirees. That was something the Obama administration had had agreed to, had included in his budget. The reason it wasn't implemented was because the congressional Republicans pulled out of the deal because part of the deal was there's also going to be some tax increases and the congressional Republicans wouldn't go along with it. So that's how that fell apart. But just looking at both of them, this isn't, these are examples of how the sausage gets made. That all sorts of promises get broken because they were promises that should have been made in the first place. But that's how you come together to form some package that can actually pass, that can actually fix Social Security. Bob, you asked about, you know, how does the passage of time make it more difficult to fix Social Security? And the, the, the simple answer to that is that because Social Security is underfunded by somewhere north of $20 trillion, it means we need to have you know, either $20 trillion of tax increases or $20 trillion of benefit cuts or some combination of that to keep the system solvent. If you don't do that, it, it goes insolvent. The longer you wait, it means the more Americans are exempted from, from bearing any of that burden. You know, if you if you had raised taxes beginning around 1990, when we first realized uh, that Social Security needed to be reformed again, well, Social Security could be solvent today, but for the last 30 years, people would have been paying higher taxes. I calculated that if we had raised taxes as needed, you know, beginning when Social Security's deficits reappeared, that would have imposed an additional $125,000 of taxes on a person who's going to be retiring in 2035. By avoiding reform, 
they skipped that. They didn't have to bear any of that burden. The only way we're going to get it back is by cutting their benefits. So the delay is that it, it exempts more and more Americans, current retirees, people nearing retirement from bearing any of that $20 trillion burden, which means that later people, our kids, are going to have to bear more of it. Any sort of cost is easier to bear if you spread it out over more and more people. So each bear just a little bit of it. The longer we delay, we're concentrating that cost on a smaller number of people who, to be honest, did nothing to deserve it. You know, my kids, my grandkids, when they come along, they didn't create any of this problem, but they're going to have to bear it because, to be honest, American citizens and American politicians are being selfish. They want to kick the can down the road and make somebody else bear the cost of their mistakes. Reminds me of um, something that uh, Joe Minerick used to say, Joe Minerick uh, from the Committee for Economic Development, when we used to go around on fiscal wake up tours, would show a picture of his granddaughter and say, this is not her fault, but it is her problem. <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Only because we're making it so. Yeah. Tori. Oh, so many questions. Where to start? Um, so we were talking a little bit about solutions. Let's stay with that a little bit. Um, the political climate today is a lot different than 1983. We've got a 24-7 news cycle. We've got social media. We've got hyper-partisanship in both political parties. So I'm wondering if the nature of the fix also changes Instead of seeking out a grand bargain, are we, you know, that sort of solves the, the the problem in one big fell swoop, makes lots of big changes, makes everybody angry, but, you know, gets it all done with one vote in each chamber and one signature on a piece of legislation? Or are we looking at something that's more incremental, um, little tweaks here and there to sort of perhaps build some trust, not only among lawmakers, but between lawmakers and voters? We may end up with that. You know, there, there's a real question of what Congress is capable of doing. And, you know, that the fact that we have to ask that question is an indictment, to be frank, of our political system in the sense that Social Security, if you include, include Medicare, you know, in entitlements in general, those aren't some side issues, some some small, you know, project that the government does. That's that's our main order of business. What the government really does say is take money from young people, give it to old people. When the government admits it can't do that, when it, when Congress says we need some bipartisan commission or we need to do just little changes while kicking off the real tough stuff, that's admitting that's like McDonald's saying we don't know how to make hamburgers. <laughs> this is what the government does. And they're they're admitting they can't do it. That said, you know, we are where we are. It's it is very, very hard to ask these kinds of things. I think it's, I can't conceive of social security reform being passed on a partisan basis. Um, you know, there is, I mean, 90% of House Democrats have endorsed a social security reform bill that would fix the system by raising taxes. That's far more than any reform bill in the past ever got. That legislation will never see the light of day. It's been sitting around for a few years, has never gotten a you know, full hearing and committee because they know it's ultimately fixing it that way is not going to be popular. So we, we do have that problem. I, incremental fixes, I think there are some things we can do. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal maybe a month ago focusing on a very small, but I think maybe good messaging bill, which is to cap the maximum benefit that Social Security currently pays. 
Today, somebody earning or getting the maximum benefit retiring today would get over $42,000 per year. That is you know, somewhere on the order of three times the, the federal poverty threshold. It's you know, almost 30% higher than somebody got if they were re, uh, retiring in, in 2000. By 2050, that's going to rise to almost $60,000, a maximum benefit. There's just no pressing rationale that we need to pay people $42,000 a year or more when they earned $100,000 a year over the course of their entire lives. My small proposal is just cap it and say, look, if you earn less than 40, or if you're entitled less than $42,000, we're not going to touch it, but we're just not going to pay more than that. And there's some messaging that there has to be a limit to social security benefits, not as a safety net, not as something to prevent poverty in old age, but a limit to it as essentially a middle-class, upper-middle-class entitlement. When my wife and I, I was doing some financial planning the other day, and you know, I, I calculated we're going to retire and get something like $75,000 per year from Social Security. Again, that's three times the, the, the poverty threshold. At, at some point, enough is enough. So I think looking at targeted incremental changes might be the way to go. The question is, what is going to be the the, the event that forces that to happen? <laughs> I, crisis. I just, that's, you know, if you, once you reach a crisis, you have to do everything because the only way to fix it is to do this whole package like you did in 1983. Right. Yes, you could take nibbles at it, but the, the question is, is there political leadership to do it? Mm-hmm. Well, so that brings me to a follow-up question and then I'll I'll pass the mic. Uh, we've talked a lot about how our political environment is 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 so incapable of solving the problem. But do you think that voters have a responsibility for creating the space to allow this kind of discussion about some of the tough choices? But you know, a fact-based, data-based discussion about what's going on in Social Security, what are our options, who do they affect, how do they affect? You know, but right now I just don't see. I don't see voters giving lawmakers the opportunity to have a rational discussion about the fate of Social Security. Don't they have some responsibility here as well? Oh, of course, they absolutely have responsibility. You know, it's we have been hearing for as long as I can remember, you know, going back to President Clinton in the late 1990s, that if we don't raise Social Security taxes, then Social Security is not going to be able to afford to pay the full benefits people have been promised. Americans, you know, acting through their elected officials have year after year expressed, you know, the desire not to pay higher Social Security taxes. As a result, they have not paid higher Social Security taxes. And yet, as they're, they're approaching retirement and as Social Security's trust fund is winding down, they're saying, you can't cut the benefits that I earned. These are earned benefits. I paid for them. Like, look, if you paid for these benefits, the, the system wouldn't be going broke. The problem is we didn't pay for them. We chose not to pay for them. You know, and as I said, a medium wage worker saved or will save about $125,000 over the course of their career by virtue of not paying those benefits. Somebody earning that maximum taxable wage, that's $160,000 this year. They're going to save over $300,000 in Social Security taxes because we did not raise taxes back in the day to keep the system solvent. So it is, look, this is human nature that everybody wants to procrastinate and kick the can down the road and not bear the cost of these difficult decisions. Voters don't want to do it. And so their, their elected officials don't want to do it either. Both of them benefit, one financially, the other politically, by forcing that decision onto future generations. And it look, it is morally wrong, but that's in fact what is happening here. 
You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are discussing Social Security reform with Andrew Biggs, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, Chief Economist Steve Robinson, and I are discussing Social Security reform with Andrew Biggs, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Steve. So uh, before the break, Andrew, we were talking about uh, your proposal to cap the maximum benefit. And I think that that proposal points out one of the sort of odd things about the program that I think a lot of people don't realize. I mean, the reason there is a maximum benefit is because there is a maximum taxable wage. So in other words, everybody thinks, well, they're going to pay the the 12.4% payroll tax on their earnings, but that only goes up currently to about 160, I think it's 162,000 is the current level. So if you make over that, you don't pay any tax. And so one of everybody's favorite solutions is, well, we'll just take the cap off of the taxable maximum and we can tax everybody's wages. But what they don't realize is that 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 maximum is there because it also puts a limit on benefits. So if if you pay the tax up to 160,000, then you have a, a maximum benefit that's paid up to that amount. If you took the cap off and taxed all the wages, implicitly, unless you change the program, you know, you'd have millionaires collecting not not the 40,000 that you mentioned as the maximum benefit, they'd be collecting, you know, 400,000 or something like that, it would just be some crazy amount. And so, you know, it, it, there's this little bit of a, I guess, how, how do you, from a public policy perspective, how do you square, you know, this desire of saying, okay, well, the, the system should only pay so much, there should be an upper limit to how much it pays, but then everybody's favorite solution is to say, well, we're going to cap the benefits, but we don't want to cap the tax. I mean, most European countries, for example, they have a cap on their taxable maximum. Uh, why is there such interest in taking the cap off, off of, the, of the maximum here? One of the, a lot of this goes back to Social Security's history, but one of the reasons why Social Security is so difficult to change today is that people feel this was an earned benefit. They say, this is not a welfare benefit given to me, you know, just by, you know, the grace of the federal government. This is something I earned that I paid for. And what what contributes to that feeling, this is something you earned and you paid for, is there isn't massive redistribution from the rich to the poor in Social Security. I mean, clearly there is. It's a progressive system. But that cap on payroll taxes was put in so that this doesn't become to look like a welfare program. And, you know, FDR was very clear. He said this. I want this to people to feel like they, they've earned, they own their benefits. I don't want this to look like what in those days they called relief to what we call welfare today. If you and at the same time, though, people will think it's just common sense. It's crazy. How come we don't apply this payroll tax to all earnings? Why do we cap it at under sixty thousand dollars? Well, it's precisely for the reason that FDR said, because we don't want this to look like a welfare program. The interesting thing, you know, when you look at press discussions or media discussions of that social security, you know, maximum taxable salary is, you know, people just say it's active, it's just crazy that we don't tax all earnings. 
when in fact we tax more earnings than most other countries do. If you're in Canada, I think the maximum taxable salary there is somewhere around $70,000 in the UK. It's similar in France. It's similar to that. I think it's actually about $55,000 there. We are unusual in having such a high cap on wages that are, that are taxed. But as you said, Steve, since the tax and the benefit formulas go together, the result of that is we end up paying already much higher benefits to high wage earners than other countries. The maximum Social Security benefit, that $42,000 I talked about, is two to three times higher than what you would get in Australia or the United Kingdom or Canada or New Zealand, you know, countries which are sort of similar to us. And they pay dramatically lower benefits to high earners than we do. What they well, they also do those, they pay higher benefits to low earners. So those programs, those other countries are a much better safety net against poverty than social security is. But one way they finance that is not by having these extravagant benefits for the rich. So the US social security program is really unusual compared to a lot of other countries, but it's unusual in ways that are making it harder and harder to fix and also make it less effective as social insurance. You're not helping the people at the bottom who really need it the most. For rich people, you're simply giving them benefits that they could have provided on their own by saving a 401k. So it's just not, the solvency problem is obviously a big issue, but but Social Security is a government program like any other, and we should always be looking at, at how we can make this work better for people, give better protection at lower cost. There's really not enough interest in that in Congress, though. Yeah, so does that suggest perhaps a grounds for political compromise? I mean, you know, the, the Democrats have, it used to be there's a bipartisan consensus that, yeah, we're going to have to raise taxes and cut benefits. Now it's like the, Republicans are saying, well, no, we're not going to raise taxes. And the Democrats are saying, we're not going to cut benefits. In fact, not only are we not going to cut them, we're going to increase them. Yes. So <laughs> yes. In, in terms of the redistribution here, you know, there have been some talks, for example, of as part of reform of beefing up the minimum benefit. I mean, do, do you know, making sausage here, does buying off votes and constituencies and saying, look, as part of reform, we're going to increase benefits for some but of course, you know, by definition, that means you're going to have to cut them even more for somebody else. But does that perhaps create some momentum for reform by, by doing, doing more redistribution? If you had asked me this 15 or 20 years ago, I would have said yes. Um, I think the, the, the thinking in, in George W. Bush's administration was we'll make Social Security smaller, but more progressive, meaning we'll cut benefits a lot in the middle and the upper income areas to make the system solvent without raising taxes, but we're going to use some of those savings to increase, improve the safety net for people at the bottom. And common sense would make you think that small but progressive would be the, the sweet spot for a compromise between Republicans and Democrats. I just don't think that it doesn't sell with, with Democrats anymore. Um, you know, where they are now is well to the left of where they were 20 years ago. I mean, the whole spectrum, uh, the whole political spectrum on Social Security has shifted to the left. 20 years ago, you could have had a bipartisan deal that would have essentially split the difference between tax increases and benefit cuts. You, know, you would have had a bit of a tax increase, but you would have had you know, some stuff in the retirement age or the coal or whatever. Um, Republicans should have gone along with it. They, they could have had a good deal back then. Um, since then, though, 
most Democrats overwhelmingly say, we will not cut benefits in any way. In fact, we want to increase benefits and raise taxes to finance it. Some Republicans still want to, to fix the system by reducing benefits, like the conservative Republican study committee. But former President Trump is saying, I'm not going to cut benefits at all. He has the same policy position that the President Biden does. It's just he has no idea at all how he's going to finance. I mean, literally no idea. Um, so it's the, the, the window of how you package together a deal for Social Security, I think for many Democrats, the, the tax increases aren't just to finance benefits, because a lot of those are going to be financing benefits for rich people. It is a symbolic thing that we're sick of having you know, these programs cut. And so they just said, we're just not going to do it. You know, but at the same time, they, they kind of know politically they can't pass and all tax increases bill themselves. So I think the strategy, you wait it out and then you squeeze Republicans to go along with tax increases. But another 10 years, though, and that's going to be really, really tough to do. But it's going to be general revenue tax increases. I mean, there may be tax increases on the wealthy in terms of raising the cap that, that you mentioned. About, but what I worry about is we're getting so close that, you know, you just... You, the anti-reformers have kind of played out the clock to the extent where you get to a point where you either cut benefits, uh, you know, suddenly, which isn't going to happen, or you have to start infusing the program with general revenues like the Highway Trust Fund. And uh, that has some changes, uh, implications for how the program is perceived. It, it does. Um, I don't personally, I don't think those would be bad implications. I, I honestly, as much as you thinking, having earned Social Security benefits that you paid for and you deserve, you think that's as American as apple pie. That perception, I think, has made Social Security very, very hard to fix over time. So I think weakening that perception, because look, it's not like we earned them and paid for them. We didn't. <laughs> so it's the worst of both worlds. We think we earned them. So we have this moral response. Uh, you see emotional response if they're cut. And yet we didn't, in fact, pay for them, which means the system's insolvent. So we're really getting the worst of both worlds there. A general revenue transfer, you know, it, it it, it, it's something that is, in fact, doable. I mean, by the time Social Security, by the time the trust fund runs out in 2035, in that year, we'll have transferred around $300 billion of general tax revenues from the Treasury, you know, most income taxes, to Social Security to help repay the trust fund bonds. In 2035, we could just simply keep transferring that money. Now, you know, it, it just it just means we're just funneling additional money in um, and, it, you know, it weakens the earned benefit myth and all that. But I don't think that's helpful. Do you so, think it would earn, uh, do you think it would weaken fiscal responsibility? I mean, I've never been a big fan of the trust funds. OK, so I, but the one thing it, it does impose some sort of fiscal response, fiscal restraint anyway, in the program where if it's a more general revenue finance, would, would we find more proposals? enacted that would enhance benefits because what the hell now it's just coming out of social, uh, you know, it's funded like Medicare part B or Medicaid. I don't know. My, my tendency is to think not. And the reason is when I look at other countries where they, you know, they, like the UK nominally has a trust fund, but nobody pays attention to it. They really do think much more with these programs about, okay, how much is it going to cost in a given year? And you know, how are we going to raise the money for it in that year? Um, so I, at, at the end, of, you know, 
delaying until 2035 is not going to be a good outcome. I'm not, I'm not saying hey, that this is how we do it. Um, but, you know, are there worse things? You know, would it lock in benefits? I think if you said, look, we're explicitly just bailing this system out to the tune of 300 billion or so a year, that might give people a clearer idea that the benefits are not being fully paid for by the participants. And so if we want to trim them at the top, um, then I think that might open the door to doing that, you know, and the idea that you didn't earn this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to figure out. Um, but I, overall, I, I do think the, the trust fund financing, the idea this is some sort of separate self-financing program where you paid taxes, they're saved for you, they come back to you. I just think that's been harmful. And I, I just need the evidence of 40 years of not fixing a program when we all knew you know, clearly it needed to be fixed. The trust fund uh, financing pushed that narrative. The earned benefits view pushed that. So it, it, would it be worse than what we have today? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, who knows? We may find out, but we're going to have to leave it right there at this point. We'll certainly get back to you because Social Security is sort of back on the political agenda. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking to Andrew Biggs of the American Enterprise Institute about Social Security reform. Steve and I will be right back with more on Social Security right after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, I'm going to be talking with Steve Robinson, uh, our Concord Coalition chief economist, about a new issue brief that he calls Social Security's Debt Limit Escape Clause. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit uh, for you. Um, just to, to sort of tee things up a bit, as you know, we're, uh, if you listen to this program at all, you know that one of the things that Congress really needs to do is raise the debt ceiling because we are now bumping up against it. And the Treasury Department is taking certain extraordinary measures, as they're called, which is a little bit of intergovernmental bookkeeping to keep the uh, borrowing under the, the debt limit and continue to be able to pay the bills. That, uh, that is going to run out sometime this summer. We don't know when. And at that point, the government would uh, face some very tough choices about what bills it could pay and what bills it couldn't pay. And that leads to the question, what would happen with Social Security? Um, a few months back, when this first became, people started talking about it, there were a lot of folks who were saying, well, Social Security is going to be, you know, cut or delayed or however we, we want to put it like everybody else. And, um, you know, I asked Steve about that and he said, I'm not so sure. I mean, there's, he had worked at SSA and thought that uh, there was a way that Social Security benefits could be paid even with the, uh, the debt limit having been reached. So, Steve, uh, when you started to research what Social Security would be able to, to pay or not pay under the, the debt limit, uh, where, where did you start? There's a cap on the maximum amount of money the government can borrow. But what's not necessarily apparent to everyone is that the debt is actually comprised of two types of debt. There's the debt held by the public, and we refer to the public as roughly, you know, private pension funds, investors, foreign countries, foreign central banks, our own central bank, Federal Reserve. So these are bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds that are, are bills, notes, bonds, long-term, short-term, 
that are purchased by investors in the financial markets. But that's about t- roughly 24 trillion. There's another roughly 6 trillion in debt that's held by the government itself. We have the federal government has numerous trust fund programs. You have the highway trust fund, you have the social security trust funds, the Medicare trust funds, the, the leaking underground storage tank trust funds. There's, <laughs> there's a plethora of, of trust funds. And they also invest in government bonds. But from a sort of a economic financial market perspective, the bonds that are held by the trust funds are really just a matter of bookkeeping or, or accounting. They, they track the flows of, of money in and out of the trust funds, as well as the interest that's earned by the bonds held by the trust funds. And so what happens when you reach the debt limit is that the Treasury Department has authority under current law to essentially delete or erase or temporarily uh, uninvest a portion of those trust fund bonds, and, and specifically the civil service retirement system and the federal employee thrift savings plan. So they have standing legal authority, and this is what's called extraordinary measures, where essentially what they do is they take money out of the trust fund. So they, they well, I'm sorry, they don't take money out. They, they take the bonds held by the trust funds and, and simply you know, disinvest them or redeem them and essentially set them off to the side so that they don't count toward the debt limit anymore. That essentially frees up space under the debt limit so that the treasury can then go out and borrow from the public an equal or equivalent amount of money that they can keep the government operating. So it's, it's, it's as you suggest, it's an accounting maneuver that allows the treasury to continue borrowing from the public even though the, the government as a, as a whole has reached its debt limit. So they're essentially exchanging these bonds held by trust funds for bonds held by the public. And so in the past, before these extraordinary measures were, were explicitly written into law, uh, specifically back in, in the 1980s, early 1980s, the, the government was in a similar situation. And what happened back then is there was some question of whether they would have the money needed to, to pay social security benefits. And so the treasury department uh, redeemed or disinvested a portion of the trust fund bonds so they could continue paying benefits. A similar thing happened in the early nineties where they were in a debt limits situation and they didn't, weren't sure they have enough money to, to pay benefits. And the Congress actually passed a law that said, well, we're gonna let the treasury department borrow money from the public of an amount roughly equal to what we're going to have to pay in benefits, and we'll simply not count that borrowing toward the debt limit. So you've had you know two historical episodes where the Treasury Department and then the Congress came up with an accounting maneuver that allowed them to make sure that benefits were paid on time and and essentially you know circumvent or get around the debt limit. So in 1997, Congress actually passed a law. And the the way the law is written, it says that no officer or employee of the government shall disinvest the Social Security and Medicare trust funds for any purpose other than paying benefits. So it's stated sort of as a negative. But if you turn it around, what that really says is that, you know, if push comes to shove and you have no other way of paying benefits, then an officer... (laughs) of the government can redeem the trust fund bonds to pay benefits. So essentially in 1997, Congress wrote 
an escape hatch or an escape clause, however you want to phrase it, into the law that allows the redemption of Social Security and Medicare trust funds in order to make sure that benefits are paid. And so what I... Yeah, so what I point out in my issue brief is that unlike the previous episodes in 85 or or in in 95, there is now currently an explicit provision of law that says to the Treasury Secretary, if you can't pay benefits any other way, you're permitted to disinvest the trust funds to make sure those benefits are paid. Through this history, a couple of things sort of stick out in terms of what is Congress's intent here. One is that despite a debt limit crisis, they want Social Security benefits to continue to be paid. And the second is they don't want and they're paid out of the trust fund by disinvesting, as you said, to create space that they can then obtain the cash to pay the benefits. On the other hand, they They've made it clear that they don't want the Social Security Trust Fund to be used as a quote unquote extraordinary measure like uh, the Civil Service Trust Fund, where the Treasury Secretary can tap into the Social Security Trust Fund for the purpose of paying other government bills. Now, the interesting one of the most interesting things that you found in your research is that that those two ends may be at odds, may conflict in a debt limit crisis. There's a conflict there because unlike in the 80s and the 90s, Social Security benefits used to be paid on the first or the third day of the month. So essentially, if you knew how much money you needed to pay Social Security benefits, you could disinvest the trust fund, borrow the money and pay the benefits. The problem now, though, is that since the uh, the law was passed, um, We've started paying Social Security benefits not on the third day of the month, but actually we pay them throughout the month. So they, the Social Security instituted a new policy so that Social Security benefits are paid. Some of them are paid on the third, and then some are paid on the following Wednesday. Some are paid on the, the Wednesday following that, and some are paid on the Wednesday following that. So essentially, Social Security benefits are paid on the third of the month and every Wednesday of the month following that. So you have essentially benefits paid throughout the month. And so the timing, the difficulty of Treasury to redeem some trust fund debts, borrow from the public, pay the benefits each and every Wednesday as, as necessary. And then, of course, there's a concern that all the checks might not clear on Wednesday and some of them may not clear until Thursday or Friday or the following Monday. And the question is, well, how would you make sure that there were there was enough cash in the you know the government's checking account to make sure that all the checks, social security checks, cleared? And so the dilemma that the Treasury faces is that they could redeem enough bonds to pay the benefits, but what happens if the general fund or the check the tre- Treasury checking account gets overdrawn and they can't clear all the social security checks? They might some of them might bounce effectively and not get paid. And so what the Treasury might have to do in order to guarantee that all the Social Security checks cleared is he might actually have to redeem a little extra money to make sure that no other check cleared before the Social Security checks cleared and they didn't overdraw their account. And so the dilemma or the conflict that appears is that the only way the Treasury could guarantee that all the Social Security checks were paid and cleared and received by their recipients is to make sure that the general fund account is never overdrawn 
by having other checks clear ahead of the Social Security checks. And there's really no, you know, the Treasury claims that operationally it does not have the ability to pay some checks and not pay other checks. Uh, or certainly once the checks are issued to clear checks at a different, you know, in a different priority. And so, you know, I'm taking them at their word that they really can't do that. And so they have a dilemma is if since they can't prioritize checks and payments, they'd have to make sure that all the money was there necessary to pay all the benefits, which might mean that some of the money would get spent on other things, which clearly is not what Congress intended. So you get a backdoor extraordinary measure of a of a a huge proportion because there's a there's a lot of spending authority in the Social Security Trust Fund. Well, yeah, the trust fund is so about two point eight trillion dollars. So you could fund the government a pretty long time uh, in addition to the cash flow if you also could could tap into the trust fund. Um, now, in theory, the Congress would restore all of this back to the trust fund and it would be made whole once the debt limit ceiling was lifted and everything went back to normal. Uh, so it's not as if Congress is taking this away from the trust fund and, and it's going to somehow make the trust fund worse off. Uh, the idea is that this would be a temporary me- measure and that, that things would go back to normal after the, the debt limit was uh, was increased. This is going to be an interesting one to follow uh, over the summer. So, Steve, thank you for getting that discussion uh, uh, started with your issue brief. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tune in again next week when we will have another edition of Facing the Future. 